continue in our sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 6 this morning. The church of God groans. It is the utmost satanic delusion to talk of religion and slavery. Be not deceived. To affirm that a slaveholder is a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ is most intelligible, is a most intelligible contradiction. A brother of him who went about doing good and steal, enslave, torment, starve, and scourge a man because his skin is of a different tinge. Such Christianity is the devil's manufacture to delude souls to the regions of woe. It's a quote from George Bourne, a Presbyterian pastor whose book, um, The Book and Slavery Irreconcilable, got him removed from ministry by his presbytery in the early 1800s. He wrote this book and uh, would preach sermons like this and refused communion to slaveholders, uh, even pastors in his presbytery, and uh, was removed from ministry, and uh, that was affirmed by the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church, and so he sought to do ministry elsewhere. George Bourne saw clearly what the Scriptures teach, and he lived it out at great cost to himself. Refusing communion to slaveholders was not an easy thing, but a risky thing for him in, in that time. Now, how can we be as certain as he was that the book, the Bible, holds that slavery is irreconcilable with the law of God, with the gospel, and the teachings of Christ, particularly when, uh, given the way certain passages, like the one I'm about to preach from this morning, has been used by so many to justify slavery? We're going to seek to answer that question this morning. First of all, we need to understand that this morning is, is not a lecture on this topic or even a lengthy discussion, which actually is maybe far more conducive for this kind of a conversation. Um, this, this is a, uh, a, a, we're preaching God's word this morning. We're going to address that question, not every detail of the question, because we're also uh, seeking to have God's word address us in this moment, not just to know things historically and to understand those things, but actually to change today, right? It's easy to condemn the sins of the past, but not to condemn the sins of my own heart. And we want to do, uh, we, we want to understand past things for sure this morning and give that context, but we also want to address our hearts. Now, there are good books that uh, give lots more detail about uh, these things. There are resources for this, but this is not an academic discussion. Now, we also need to know that uh, to understand what question we're seeking to answer, we have to go about it in the proper way. If we are seeking, and partially we are seeking, to answer the question of uh, slavery in the American context, given that that's our history here as a people, uh, we cannot take these passages that we're going to look at this morning and apply them directly to that question. First, we have to go back and understand the context of the first century. We have to travel backward into the text to understand what is this text saying in the first century context. We do this all the time, right? We do this in every text. We're going back to the first century context to understand what it's saying here 
and then to derive principles from that so that we can move forward into the question of American slavery or the questions of injustice that we have before us today. Uh, I want to recommend to you one resource, um, this book, Reading While Black, uh, by Esau McCulley. Um, This is a phenomenal resource. We went through it as a staff team. Um, Just super, super helpful. I am relying a lot on what he wrote on a chapter on slavery um, for this morning, and so I want to give him credit, but also urge you to pick up this book. It's really, really good. Um, It's not, not that thick. That's two weeks in a row I've recommended not thick books, guys. So I get credit for that, I think. Um, So uh, Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. If you want to bring that up on the screen there. All right. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Go to the next one. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. I think there's one more, or no? Is that the end? That's the end. All right. Uh, Now, for us to understand what we're looking at in this passage, we need to understand first century context. Uh, George Bourne, in his book, quotes from the Reverend David Rice, who says this, Christians were at that period under the Roman yoke, the government of the heathen, who were watching every opportunity to charge them with designs against the government to justify their bloody persecutions. In such circumstances, had the apostle proclaimed liberty to the slaves, many of them would have been exposed to certain destruction, and the Christian cause might have been ruined without freeing a single man. This would have been the height of madness and cruelty. It was wise and humane merely to hint, if thou mayest be free, use it rather. Now, it's really hard for us to think from this perspective. But it is true within the context of the first century that the church was a persecuted minority, and we're going to to talk a lot more about how that worked out, but we need to understand when we hear this text, we can't read it from all that we hear today, we have to read it and understand what the first hearers would have heard. Uh, Maybe something that might help us is to imagine how we would respond pastorally to those in a persecuted church context today. Would we tell them to rise up against the government and to overthrow injustice? Likely not, given that it would cause the government to clamp down on them. We might actually uh, help them pastorally talk through what God is doing and then at the same time affirm the glorious gospel, and the truth of God, right? There are places, certainly, we walk through the book of Acts where Paul is confronted with various things and he says, we will obey God and not man. We will do the right thing. And yet, at the same time, Paul is not rushing the church into persecution, right? And so we have to understand the context in which was happening here in the first century. Roughly one-third of the Roman world were slaves, 
according to best estimates. Uh, It's hard to estimate things like this, but roughly one-third of the Roman world were slaves. Uh, You could become a slave in the Roman world by being a prisoner of war, or being born into slavery, or uh, primarily selling yourself because of debt, which was not a perpetual servitude, but uh, a way in which you handled debt uh, was not through creditors and other things that we handle debt through today, but was selling your labor to someone to pay off your debt. But that was not a perpetual thing. So when we hear the word slave or slavery, we rightly recoil at it. And we have certain feelings. Again, rightly. We feel righteous anger. But I want to help us understand why we should feel righteous anger and what this text is saying. And to do that, we cannot read 18th and 19th century American slavery into the text. First have to deal with the first century context and then come forward. We're going to land still with righteous anger. But we're going to do it in the right way. We're going to go backward and come forward in that. So to understand that, we need to discuss some differences between American and Roman slavery. Certainly not, in in saying this, it's not like saying, hey, Roman slavery was a good thing, American slavery was a bad thing. No, Roman slavery was also bad. It was dehumanizing. It could be quite brutal. And it was dehumanizing. We're not saying that it was a good thing, and I don't think that the scriptures would say so either. But one of the key differences is it was not strictly race-based, as American slavery was. There was not uh, inventions uh, to dehumanize an entire race of people to justify slavery. That was not the case within Roman slavery. Primarily prisoners of war and selling yourself because of debts or born into slavery, but still had no rights. Which is why there's actually some remarkable things that happen in this text just on the surface of it. One is that Paul addresses slaves as part of the church. He addresses them directly. He's not speaking about slaves. He's addressing slaves. Meaning he is humanizing and saying, you have real agency in this place. You are a person made in God's image, and I address you as such. And meaning what he has already said to the church about treating one another with honor and respect and care as brothers and sisters is true for them as well. Affirming their personhood and expressing, uh, expressly challenging the idea that a slave is merely property by addressing them. That's a pretty radical thing. Also, Paul elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1 strongly condemns slave trading. He ranks it among uh, some of the most heinous sins. He ranks it right there with it, man-stealing or slave trading. It's ranked high in his list of sins that he condemns. And not only that, we need to understand the things that he uh, says about slavery in other places like the book of Philemon, which we'll look at here in a moment. But I also want you to consider that as Paul is addressing this, I think oftentimes we think Paul is addressing a group of masters with maybe some slaves as a part of it. That's likely not the case. Masters were likely the minority in the church. Slaves were likely a higher percentage of people in the church. The second century anti-Christian writer Celsus says this about the church. He says, The following are the rules laid down by them. 
Let no one come to us who has been instructed or who is wise or prudent, for such qualifications are deemed evil by us. But if there, are, if there be any ignorant or unintelligent or uninstructed or foolish persons, let them come with confidence. By which words, acknowledging that such individuals are worthy of their God, they manifestly show that they desire and are able to gain over the silly and the mean and the stupid with women and children. You see, Celsus has great contempt for the church because it grew among those who were deemed lesser in culture. So when Paul says slaves and he addresses slaves, he's actually addressing probably a far greater number of people than he addresses masters. That says something very important about what we're doing with this text. We need to understand, and we're going to look at the thrust of the entire scriptures and what God is doing, and we shouldn't be surprised that the church grew among those who were marginalized. Remember the history of Israel. We, before going through uh, the book of Acts, we were in the book of Exodus. We are going to return and finish that after we're done with Ephesians. I've decided. We're going back to Exodus and finishing Exodus. But we were in the book of Exodus. The high point of salvation in the Old Testament is God redeeming a people out of slavery, liberating them, both spiritually and physically liberating them. And all throughout the scriptures, God tells the Israelites to remember who you were. The church always grew among the oppressed and the marginalized because they were deemed worthy of God's love when the world told them that they were unworthy as Celsus very clearly says. So we need to remember that the master is an anomaly in the church, not the slave. So anything we think of what Paul says here, we need to know that in that context. It's not to say that masters weren't present. They were, he addresses them, but they were not the majority. And we need to understand the perspective of the scriptures, as I said, the whole of the scriptures. You'll go to the next uh, slide, the quote there. Esau McCulley in his book, he says, I want to contend that the Old Testament and later the New Testament create an imaginative world in which slavery becomes more and more untenable. Stated differently, God created a people who could theologically deconstruct slavery. Esau's argument, and he traces that through, and I'm going to walk a little bit of his argument, is that the Bible creates for us a people who can deconstruct slavery and can abolish it and creates a people who ought to move in this direction, and anything outside of that is a sinful use of Scripture, as we'll see. So, right at the beginning of the law, right? We've, we, we went through Exodus to the beginning of the law. Exodus 20, verse 2, it says this, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from the land of Egypt, the place of slavery. At the beginning of the law, God is going to give Israel, his rules for how they should live in the land. And he says, remember that you were slaves in Israel or in Egypt. Remember that I liberated you from slavery. Israel is forced to remember this. And God starts his law that way because he's going to uh, give commands and laws that deal with the reality of slavery because the world they lived in, in the ancient Near East, had slavery. That was already a part of the world in which they were living. And so God brings his law to minimize suffering and to create a people 
who will overthrow the unjust systems of the world. And I want to show you how that happens. All right, Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 15 says this. If a fellow Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant, right? The way in which slaves became slaves in Israel was the same in terms of debt, coming out of debt, selling yourself into slavery so that you could pay off a debt, selling your services, your labor. And serves you for six years. In the seventh year, you must set that servant free. Seventh year, set him free. Doesn't say when he's paid his debt. Says seventh year, set him free. It doesn't qualify it at all. And then it, actually, it does qualify it, actually. It says, when you release him, when you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty with which the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I'm giving you this command. This is huge, right? If this is true within Israel, that you're going to allow someone to come sell themselves to you for the purpose of paying off debt, and then you're going to send them out with resources so that they're no longer going to get in debt, Lord willing, and release them. You know what that's going to do? It's going to end any system of slavery in Israel. Eventually, right? You're going to release them every seven years. It's going to end it. Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 16. If slaves should escape from their masters and take refuge with you, you must not hand them over to their masters. Let them live among you in any town they choose and do not oppress them. Esau McCulley points out in his book, there is nothing like these laws in any ancient Near Eastern culture or in the Greco-Roman first century. There were actually treaties done in seminary. I wrote a paper on this uh, law here. And there are treaties that were done between countries to... Uh, and. Standard to that was, if our slaves escape to you, you'll return them, and vice versa, right? But the law clearly forbids that. Israel was to be a light to the nations. And one of the ways they were to do that is to say, if you can escape, go to the free people of God. And do not oppress them. There's nothing quite like this. And Really, what we have to, to see, and, and there's some other passages that Esau points out, and there are some passages that are certainly uh, challenging. All, all of these passages are challenging. But certainly there was the, the ability for Israelites to own foreign slaves and to keep them. They didn't have to release them every seven years. That was for fellow Israelites. But if you understand the thrust of the Old Testament and the prophecies of the Old Testament, what's the goal of Israel? that all the nations would come, adopt God's law, and be a part of it. You see, the whole thrust is to say, this thing that God is doing here is going to go global, and everyone's going to become part of this, and you're going to welcome brother and sister from foreign land and treat them like you do brother and sister. You see, the whole idea behind this is to liberate the world. Now, to bring it to the context of our passage here in Ephesians chapter 6, we need to understand kind of the context around it. 
right? We started this whole section when we talked about husbands and wives and children and parents with uh, Ephesians 5.21. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That has to be able to be obeyed. Whatever Paul says about slaves and masters, this has to be able to be obeyed. Meaning, masters submit to slaves out of reverence for Christ. Affirm the dignity of someone else as a brother or sister in Christ. As a Christian, that is the highest office you hold. And it gives you rights and abilities to call out sin in other Christians, to confront and challenge, and to love as brother and sister. This is the context in which Paul says this. We also need to understand the context of the whole book and the situation for Paul. Uh, we're going to skip ahead to Ephesians 6, 21 to 22. Uh, this is the, the area, we're going to look at a couple of areas of this book and Colossians. The, the boring areas when you're reading devotionally and you skip over the like, names of people, right? They're actually super important, right? Paul says this, To bring you up to date, Tychicus will give you a full report about what I am doing and how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper in the Lord's work. I have sent him to, to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. It means Tychicus is going to carry this letter to the church in Ephesus, right? He's carrying it, and he's going to give some other messages, all right? This feels like totally like out of the blue, like, where are you going with this? Trust me, all right? Just hang in, hang in there. All right, so Colossians chapter 4, 7 through 9 says this. Tychicus will give you a full report about how I am getting along. He is a beloved brother and faithful helper who serves with me in the Lord's work. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, to let you know how we are doing and to encourage you. I am also sending Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, one of your own people. He and Tychicus will tell you everything that's happening here. All right, anyone know who Onesimus is? Right, Onesimus is a slave who escaped from Philemon and found his way to Paul. So Tychicus and Onesimus are carrying the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and the letter to Philemon. So whatever Paul says about slaves and masters, we have to remember he is entrusted as a faithful follower of Jesus, a former slave, to deliver this message. Onesimus is going to come to the church gathering like this with his master who, is, who we believe with good reason that he escaped from, sitting in the pew, and he's going to read the words of Paul to them, along with Tychicus. Can Paul be sending a letter like Philemon, which undermines the system of slavery within the church, albeit subtly, as we'll look at, and a letter that condones slavery at the same time, carried by the same group of messengers, which includes a slave? Whatever we think Paul says here, I don't think we can make the argument that he's condoning slavery, given that he is going to undermine it with his letter to Philemon and send them with the same group of people to the same church. Right? He's sending this all together. Now, there is some difference of opinion when it comes to Philemon, but it seems like very clear when you read Philemon in its entirety and understand the context that Paul is undermining the entire system of slavery within the church for Philemon and Onesimus. I want to read a section of Philemon for us this morning. Philemon 14 to 22. 
But I didn't want to do anything without your consent. I wanted you to help because you were willing, not because you were forced. Seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. And I won't mention that you owe me your very soul. It's throwing around a little bit of weight here, right? And this is Paul. When you see uh, this, like all this caps here, it's the translation trying to show you that the, in the original manuscripts, this is Paul's actual writing. So Paul wrote by like uh, saying something to someone and they wrote it down, like a scribe wrote it down for them. That was a common practice. But there are certain places where Paul writes by his own hand. And this is one where Paul writes by his own hand. I won't even mention that you owe me your very soul. Yes, my brother, please do me this favor for the Lord's sake. Give me this encouragement in Christ. I am confident as I write this letter that you will do what I ask and even more. Oh, one more thing. Please prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that God will answer your prayers and let me return to see you soon. So Paul says, hey, I'm sending Onesimus back to you. He is a follower of Jesus. I'm sending him back to you. I'm not going to command you to do anything, though I could. Don't let me mention that you owe me your very soul. Philemon probably became a Christian under Paul's preaching. And you're going to do this favor for me. I want you to treat Onesimus like you would treat me. Is Philemon going to enslave Paul? Also, by the way, I'm coming soon. I'll see you soon. Make sure you do me this favor. Paul is undermining the entire system of slavery in this church for Onesimus, whose name, by the way, means useful. He probably was born into slavery, given a name like useful, a dehumanizing name, which Paul redeems over and over again in Philemon by a play on words in different places. Right? I think it's the word favor here is a play on words for Onesimus, that you will do this good work for me. You will do this useful thing for me. Paul is urging Philemon in this text to release him. Otherwise, why would Paul, wouldn't Paul be in violation of the Old Testament? And Paul frequently calls himself blameless according to the law. Because wouldn't he be breaking the refugee slave law? If Philemon, or if Onesimus escaped to Paul, he's not allowed to return him to his master. According to the Old Testament. Is he going to do that and disobey the Old Testament? Or is it better to understand that Paul knew exactly what he was doing and the powerful statement it would send to the church when Onesimus walked in with this letter, read it, and Philemon stood up and gave him a hug as a brother? The powerful message it would show to the church that this is a different kind of place. We may not all get together and go storm Caesar's palace because we would have lost real quick, But here, life is going to function different. Here, life is going to function different. And tradition seems to to tell us that Onesimus was freed. There's a man named Onesimus who eventually succeeds Timothy as pastor of Ephesus, or bishop of the church of Ephesus. 
Isn't it likely that this is the same Onesimus that Philemon freed, that trained under Paul, who eventually leads the church that Paul's writing this letter to right now? And that Philemon would have been called to submit to Onesimus as a brother in Christ and then as a church leader? Upending the entire system. Why do we say all that? Well, I think we need to understand that Paul, what Paul can and cannot be saying in this passage to know that he's sending this along with Philemon's letter to Onesimus. All right. That was a lengthy introduction. We're going to actually deal with the passage now, all right? I was concerned. I told Whitney earlier this week, I was like, this might be a four-hour sermon, so just strap in, guys. We're good. All right. Ephesians 6. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. All right, one principle that we can pull from this text is that our circumstances cannot determine our obedience. I think we have already sufficiently addressed about what Paul would be saying about freedom. But remember, I think it's fair to say that at least some of the slaves if not most of the slaves in this context that he's addressing, do not have Christian masters. He's not just addressing slaves who might have Christian masters like Philemon. Remember, that's a small number of people. He's likely addressing lots of folks who do not have Christian masters. And what is Paul going to say, and how is he going to instruct them of what to do in their circumstance? Obey Jesus. Do not compromise holiness because of circumstances. If it's true for first century Roman slaves that they are told not to, to, uh, to compromise their holiness because of circumstances, how much more true could that be of us? Now, remember, the Old Testament includes lots of stories in which slaves disobeyed their masters. Right? We, we looked at this in Exodus. Remember the midwives in the beginning of Exodus who refused to kill Israel's sons? They refused to disobey God and to obey a master who would call them to, to do something wicked. What Paul does, Paul does not have in mind here absolute obedience. Paul has in mind here, I, I mean, we could look at other examples, right? Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Joseph is a slave. He refuses to obey his master for the sake of holiness, and he goes to jail for it, right? Paul is not saying, obey absolutely every command. He's saying, obey Jesus and honor those who you are serving under and obey what you can obey, working hard as if you're working for the Lord. Don't compromise your holiness. Hi, Joy. That's all it took, just one high, and she <laughs> darted back. <laughs> what about for us who work under non-Christian bosses or teachers or systems? What about when we're in a difficult circumstance? Don't compromise holiness. That might mean disobeying, and it might mean obeying. 
Because Jesus sees and Jesus will reward. Jesus sees what you do and he will reward. Moving on, he says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. That word, don't threaten them, that word for threaten, uh, or don't threaten, really, in, in the original language is more like unfasten or loosen. Could Paul be telling them, to unfasten their threats. Telling them to unfasten the chains that they hold others in and to free them? Perhaps. Certainly, we can't get around that he says, masters, treat your slaves in the same way. In the same way. What could that mean other than to love and respect and obey a brother or sister in Christ? a fellow human made in God's image, to not treat someone as property, to see someone as a brother and sister in Christ as equal in God's eyes, and to treat them as such. And we have to know that these folks are are under the same commands that Jesus would give elsewhere. The commands of the New Testament to be holy like God is holy, who is the liberator of oppressed people. To love your neighbor as yourself, which upends the entire system of slavery, not just within the church to love your brother or sister as a brother and sister in Christ, but to love your neighbor as you would like to be treated. How can we get around those commands? This language of family, the family of God, was used unfortunately, by American slaveholding Christians, used this familial language in passages like this to support a patriarchal and patronizing and dehumanizing view that upheld slavery. A true and right view of this upends the entire system. This text is upending the system, not supporting the system. So we can say confidently with George Bourne, slavery is a flagrant violation of every law of God, nature, and society cannot be reconciled with the gospel and he who ever acts in direct opposition to the Messiah's government and who hardens his soul against the impressions of that light which would convict and regenerate him cannot be a genuine disciple of him who when the hour was come invoked his father sanctify them through your truth your truth your word is truth we can understand that God is upending all the unjust systems of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which contends, as Paul says in Galatians 3, there is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to understand that in our day, God is still upending divisions and mistreatment in any way we might look down on one another through the family of God. It is as we recognize our, the humanity in one another and our connection in God's family that we can experience justice and equity in our day. Now, can we address everything in the world? No. But is there a clear difference between today and the first century context? 
in terms of the power that the church wields? Yes. To understand uh, American slavery context, Paul, I don't believe, would write these words that he does in in Ephesians to American Christians who upheld the system of slavery. I think he would write much more like he writes in 1 Corinthians and say, what are you doing? Like, how? Like, Paul is like, in 1 Corinthians, over and over again, about totally different issues, he's like, what's going on here, guys? Like, did you miss everything I taught you? That's what Paul would respond to them like. The idea that those who claim to know Christ would be in positions of power, by and large, and have the authority to free and not do so, but to create new systems of thought to dehumanize an entire group of people and continue to perpetuate a system that is evil? No, Paul would not write that. Paul would not write that. And today, for us, we need to understand that we are not in a situation in which the church faces massive persecution if we speak up for issues of justice. We're not in that place. So that means we ought to use what God has given us to promote what God cares about. Right? We need to be courageous to call sin, sin. And to fight for justice. We need to be the church together speaking on these things and not just speaking about them as though they exist out there, but following that up in how we treat each other right here. Following that up by welcoming broken people to come meet Jesus and treating them like our brother or sister in Christ across all divisions and the ways in which anyone in the world would dehumanize or treat someone as less than made in God's image. Certainly in our city, that comes about in issues of poverty and mental health and addiction. Subtle ways in which people dehumanize others. Want the problems of a, of a particular place to just move to another part of town so I don't have to deal with it. Are we going to just be okay with that same thing? Are we going to treat others as, as such? Are we going to treat people as though they're made in God's image and deserve equity and justice and fairness and the same treatment that you would treat one another with? That's the thrust of the New Testament argument, right? But what about our enemy? No. Love them like you would love yourself. If we're supposed to do that with our enemy, then there's no one that we can say, sorry, you're outside of being treated as those made in God's image. Sorry, it's okay for me to not treat you well or treat you like I would want to be treated because, you know, you're of this different... No, there's just nothing there. Everyone treated so they're made in God's image and capable of redemption by the gospel and being a brother or sister in Christ sitting right here next to you. Is that the way we're going to treat one another? Right? We've always said this at this church, that we don't want to 
enter into situations of poverty or, or whatever situation exists in our city and say, hey, we are coming here to serve you. So we stand next to each other this way and we serve you this way. No, 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 we want to come alongside you, next to you, and say, hey, how do we solve these issues together? Because we're the same. That's what Paul's saying here. Guess what? We've got the same master. And one day, he will come. And he shows no partiality. No amount of power or wealth or prestige or influence will matter in that day. The most important person on the planet will be equal to the least important person on the planet. God shows no partiality. God is just. And He will right all wrongs. Even if Philemon doesn't, God will. Even if the American court system doesn't, God will. God will right all wrongs Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15 says this, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. This lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. God will show no partiality. And will come. And every blatant deed of injustice and every secret deed of injustice will be shown for what it is. And the only hope is that your name is written in the book of life. Your hope is not in, but, but God, I treated everyone fairly. No, you didn't. Be honest with yourself. We hold the same biases. We hold the same issues. We mistreat others in our heart, if not with our actions. But God will expose the heart. Our only hope in that day is to say, Lord Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And He rose from the dead to free me from all bondage to sin. Freed me to love my neighbor as myself. And freed me from all condemnation. So if you're here today and you've faced some injustice in the world, Know that God sees, and He cares, and He will right all wrongs. If you're here today and you have been a part of perpetrating any injustice in the world, know that He sees, He cares, and He will repay all wrongs. So flee to His mercy. Flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. For He shows no partiality. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, Friends, there is no place that you will find your humanity affirmed, where you will find a God who cares about you than in the person of Jesus Christ. Run to him and have your name written in the book of life. Let's pray. Father, we...
do come before you. And Lord, this is heavy. There's so much heaviness to this text and all of these things. So God, would you just be gracious? Would your spirit be at work? Would you take what is from you and would you impress that deep upon us and take away anything that's not of you? Would you transform us that we would be your people, that we would be those who would bring your justice to the world? God, would you be gracious? Would you do all these things so that, Jesus, your name would be lifted high, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.